listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. Always delighted when our, our good friend and and brother in Christ, Pastor Gary Kinneman, is here at LWC. And um, most everybody knows Gary, but there are some of you that are new here. Uh, Dr. Kinneman led a church in, in Mesa uh, of about 4,000 people. God just used him mightily there. And, and uh, he's been very instrumental in the life of LWC. In fact, he planted Living Word Chapel back in the 70s. And uh, he probably never dreamed that it would become what it was going to be today. And, and so we're, we're very, very blessed that, that God used him as a, as a vessel. He's doing a lot around the country, working with pastors, um, working in, in, uh, in fact, he's serving on the governing board, governor's board. And a lot of things that Gary can share about that he's really been pouring into the lives of people. And all of it he's been doing for the glory of Jesus. And so we're just very thankful to have uh, Gary Kinneman. So give him a big hand as he comes and brings the word. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Oh, I guess the mic is on, huh? Good morning. Yes, um, it's hard to believe we were at uh, Lisa. What's her last name? Lisa Hill. Uh, we were at her birthday party last night. We surprised her. Had a and had a surprise birthday party for her. You know, Lisa's done the accounting here for the church, and she kind of grew up in the church. And when I came down here, I mean, she just turned fifty, and uh, it's public, okay? Yes. Well, that's why they had the big party, okay? There was a big sign in the front. It said, "The woman in this house is fifty. Um, but uh, she was like twelve when I was a pastor down here, when I started the church. And it's like, oh my God, she's 50. How old does that make me? Well, just to you know, put it in simple terms, I'm on Medicare. So <laughs> people don't believe it, but it's the fact. And uh, I got back problems. I had hernia surgery a couple of weeks ago. So anyway, too much information. Everybody went, everybody went silent on that one. Yeah. Let's, let's close in prayer and go out to breakfast. How about that? All right. Um, <clears throat> yes, but it's really good. It's really good to be here and uh, just to see what God's been doing in this place, in this community. Um, my wife and I live in Gilbert, and uh, I was a pastor of a church up there in Mesa for 25 years, and and I've been freelancing now for the last seven years. Seven years ago this month, I moved out of my office, and my successor moved in, and we overlapped for about four months, and he's done a wonderful job leading the church, Terry Christ. Um, church is called City of Grace now. It was called, it was called Word of Grace. But um, anyway, it's just great to see what God's doing here. I was with your, your leadership team last night, and I got a chance to meet Jeff, just chatted with him a little bit, and gosh, he's got a wonderful life story, and, and James is doing a wonderful, just a wonderful work leading this church, and Pastor Bob is still here. It just, everything is just sort of the way it should be, you know? Now, you people aren't the way you should be. That's why we're here to help you. But uh, 
So anyway, my wife is, um, I think she's shopping at Walmart this morning, um, but she'll be here for the late service, and uh, and she'll be going through her Walmart stuff while I'm speaking. Um, We've got three kids, they're all grown, and uh, our our oldest son is 40, and our youngest son's 31, and uh, our oldest son is in full-time ministry as a national ministry, two, three, three kids, they live in Southern California, our youngest son is in the Navy, serving the country in the Navy. He's living on the, on, the, on the East Coast in Norfolk, Virginia. And then our daughter, who is in between the two boys in age and is also in between the two boys in terms of geography, she and her husband live in, uh, in Denver. So our kids are all, acro- all spread across the country. They all went off to college and never came home. And sometimes we cry, sometimes we say, praise the Lord. So... Uh, you should have a, a, an insert. Do you, ha- do you have notes when you teach also, James, so they're used to this? And um, anyway, <clears throat> you see the title of my message here? So we're, we're going to be praying for Jeff and commissioning him to ministry here in the second service. And um, I thought this, this, is a good, this is a good theme. Life worth nothing. Okay? <laughs> Say that with me. Life worth nothing. Tell the person next to you, your life is worth nothing. (laughs) Now, some people are shaking their heads, and you're going to be sorry because you're going to find that these three, exact three words are right here in the Bible. These exact three words. Okay. Uh, What we're going to do today is we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 20. It's a passage where the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And it's a very heart, it's a very heart-filled, love-filled, pain-filled chapter because he says goodbye, he's saying goodbye, and he says to them, "Uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. And they all weep. He invested his life in Ephesus, wrote a letter, Ephesians, and he was passing through. In fact, he decided to meet them in a place called Miletus, I've been to Ephesus and I've been to Miletus. It's in ancient ruins. And uh, he agreed to meet with them in Miletus. He didn't want to go back to Ephesus because he was just a a man of controversy in that city and there had been a lot of uh, opposition. So he had the elders, the leaders of the church come to Miletus and he met them there. Miletus was a coastal city uh, with a harbor and uh, he gave them some final instructions. And I think that this chapter is as good as it gets when it comes to talking about Leadership. So the Apostle Paul is, he's giving these leaders his farewell, but kind of some final instructions. And with that in mind, let's pray. Let's open our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this special day, Lord, for Jeff and for his family and for this church and for everything that you want to do. I pray, God, for extraordinary blessing on the launch of these small groups. Um, I pray, Lord, for back to church Sunday. Most people don't come to church for one simple reason. Nobody has ever asked them. And Lord, I pray for our message today, our talk, our time together as we share your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin reading in Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 17. It says, from Miletus... Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So 
He's in Miletus. It's a port city. So was Ephesus, but he had sailed around. Uh, and uh, he calls, uh, calls, calls up Ephesus, calls the head elder on his cell phone, and uh, sends for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, probably it's probably like a, a, a two-day journey, one or two-day journey. I mean, you can drive it in a couple hours, but you know, back then they had to walk or take a camel or something. Anyway, he said to them, okay, so now this is what we want to talk about. What does Paul say to them? And this is what Paul is, is saying to us, okay? Uh, it is to, to leaders. I had a, a couple hours last night. I spent a couple hours with your elders just talking about the church and governance and challenges and litigation and, you know, doing ministry in the 21st century. Um, and they're going to be in the services today. We've got m- volunteers that are here. And so this, this is a message especially for leaders. But as we get into this message, everybody here is going to relate to some of the things that I have to say. Uh, and you're going you're gonna to hear God speaking to you. So from my leaders, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said, uh, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing, okay, if you're following in your Bible, you can kind of note those, those phrases, by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. That's a, that's a really important phrase there, anything that would be helpful uh, to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And I've, de- I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God, and I love these words, in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Not just faith, you know, well, I got faith, but faith specifically in Jesus. So uh, out of this passage, now I want to comment in a couple of texts, a couple of phrases. So the first phrase, Paul says, I was with you in in humility and tears. I was with you uh, from the first day, and I served the Lord with great humility and tears. And the, the word here, is, is brokenness, okay? But not, not resignation. Uh, this is the first thing that Paul says about himself, okay? This wasn't about a career. It wasn't about, uh, you know, it wasn't about success. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't about having an ad in the paper with a big photograph of the pastor. Uh, it was about commitment to Jesus and great humility with tears. Okay, this, this is the starting point of ministry because it's a, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God and it's a terrible thing to get the call of God on your life. It really is because it's now not about you. It's about serving God and his people. So Paul says, not, he's not, but he's not resigned. And brokenness doesn't mean resignation. You know, in our world, we live in a culture of entitlement. And whenever, I, whenever I've talked strongly about the cross or about brokenness, people, I've always had people respond, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not going to be a doormat. I mean, you hear people say, I'm not, I'm not going to be a doormat. Well, what, is, what exactly does that mean? You know, well, I'm going to stand up for my rights. You know, Paul isn't talking about being a doormat. He's talking about being completely broken before God. And out of that, he, he is going to serve uh, Jesus and and, his, and, and the family of the Lord. And he's not resigning. It's not a matter of resigning. In the face of severe testing, Paul says, in the midst, I, I, was, I had great humility 
and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. In the face of severe testing, Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. You never feel like giving up when everything's going well. You know, when you're at Disneyland at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, unless you're, you know, unless you're faint from the heat, you don't say, hey, let, hey, kids, let's go home. Half the day's over, you know. You stick it out. You know, you stand in line for 45 minutes, an hour and a half in the heat. You stand in line to go to the bathroom. You stand in line to get an $8 hot dog, okay? And, and Paul is saying, you know, there's something that's, there's something that's driving me. And so he doesn't give up in the face of severe testing. And it's what I, I call uh, the challenge of giving in but not giving up. It's, it's what I refer to as the counterintuitive power of the cross. Okay. The cross is counterintuitive. Paul says it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The cross... Uh, and I'm not just talking about Jesus dying on the cross, the redemptive power of the cross. I'm talking about the cross as a way of life, where in Peter, he tells us that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. And, uh, and Paul says in, in Philippians, have this same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to, unto death, even death on the cross. In those passages, it doesn't say anything about Jesus dying to save us. It tells us that the cross is really about the whole heart of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that is so counterintuitive in a world that is consumer-driven and supremely selfish. When you say no to your children, you're teaching them about the cross, about giving in but not giving up. When you say no to your children, are you trying to put them down, make them, uh, you know, put them into a state of despair i mean they'll they'll go into a state of despair but when you say no to your children what are you trying to do you know it's this whole idea of restraint and so this is the this is about giving in but not giving up all right and you know i've been in ministry now for for too many years and uh i've had some extraordinarily difficult times in my life i like to say i've had three really seriously I've had three really really difficult years I've had one year from hell and I've had two years from purgatory and you know these are just seasons in life where you've got to have people around you and you've got to move forward Paul says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 he says the pressures against us in Asia uh, we're not uh, I'm not quite there yet The uh, the pressures against us in Asia were so great that we despaired of life. You want to serve God? You know, you don't, you don't hear this about, you know, you don't hear anything about this in any messages about faith and how if you believe God, everything is going to work out just great. You know, what's wrong with Paul? Didn't he have enough faith? He, sa- he says right there in the Bible, the pressures were so great, I despaired of life. And then he says, but God. I love those two words, but God. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of you have said, you know, I know what the Bible says, but my problem. You end with your problem. But Paul says, you know, the, the pressures were so great that, that I despaired of life, but God was able. So uh, look at slide, uh, look at uh, cha- uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll go to that verse now. This is the counterintuitive power of the cross. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight 
in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Paul, you are either onto something or you are on something. What does this mean? This is why, for Christ's sake, I... What's the word? I... I what? I delight. That's kind of like a, you know, a a Mexican food uh, sampler for lunch today. You know? With a tall, cold glass of Coca-Cola or iced tea with lemon. I delight. Okay? I delight. James has counted all joy, my brothers, uh, when you take your family to Cold Stone Creamery. Is that what he says? Huh? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with various trials. Paul says, I mean, is he crazy? Has he lost his mind? Or does he have a very different perspective than most consumers? I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And say this with me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does he mean by that? When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Why, Paul? How can you say this? Because the more, it's really simple, the more, if we could have the next slide, the more you don't trust yourself, okay, the more you don't trust yourself, the more you trust God. And the more you trust God, the stronger you are. Life will bring you to the end of yourself. And when, it's your, when you're at the very end of your rope and you let go, you'll discover God in ways you could never discover govern when everything in your life is going great. Now, I'm not here to tell you life shouldn't go great, okay? God wants to bless us and we want our children to be blessed and we want their lives to go well. We don't want people to suffer, especially people that we love. But the fact is that we discover the power of God in our lives when we are absolutely helpless. Why would Jesus say, think about this, blessed are those who mourn. Why would he say that? Because those who mourn, those who have great loss, have an opportunity to find God in a way that where he cannot be in a way that can, in, in which he cannot be found in any other circumstance. I don't, wish, I don't wish terrible things on anybody. But when I meet people who've gone through some really extraordinary challenges in life, there's something about that that I envy. So Paul says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And this is the way he begins his talk with the Ephesian elders. You know, it's great humility with severe, uh, with severe testing. And uh, now, number three, the third thing that uh, we can learn from Paul's life. And Paul said that uh, he taught them anything that would be helpful, okay? Not happyful. You know, when you bring a friend to church, next week is come to church Sunday. Uh, as you walk out into the parking lot after church, don't ask them, don't ask them this dumb question. Did you like it? 
Okay? That's for movies. You know, we walk out of movies and we say, did you like it? Well, you know, I like most of it, but there was a song in the middle. I couldn't stand that song. You know, and that's what we do with church. We're so American. We're so consumer-driven. It's all about a scale of 1 to 10 and whether or not our experiences make us happy. You know? All right, so um, Paul says, I, I, I wanted to teach anything that would be helpful, not happyful. Um, you want to be in the ministry? Let me tell you a pastor story, okay? I was doing some counseling with a couple in our church uh, over a period of several months. They, saw, they came in s- to see me maybe five, six times. And uh, a husband and a wife had been married for 25 years. And they were having serious marriage problems. She went to our church. Her husband didn't. I was really impressed with the fact that he would come in with her to talk with her pastor. He was a Catholic she was going to our church, and you know, she goes to our church. He's a Catholic, but, you know, after about two sessions, I decided I liked him, not her. Now, you can't say that to people, okay, because if you're a pastor, you have to love everybody. Okay, you know, James, we didn't pick any of these people. They decided to come here, you know. You can pick your friends. You get to pick whatever church you go to. We don't get to pick you. We get you. You know, we, we, you are like children. You know, you can have children, but you can't decide what they're going to be like. So God, you know, God bless all the pastors. You have no idea how hard it is, you know. If you've raised children, you know how hard it is. You know, if I'd have known then what I know now, I'd have never had this kid, you know. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm liking him, and I'm counseling her more than I'm counseling him, and I'm trying to tell her, give it up, let it go, you know. Be nice to him. You know, you're, you think you've got more Jesus than he does. Well, it doesn't show in these counseling sessions. You know, you, but you don't say those things. You want to say those things, you know. And uh, so I, I didn't see him. They were, I just didn't see him anymore. They didn't come back. And I, she always sat in the same place in church. Even though we had a big auditorium, some people sat up in the, toward the front. And I always kind of knew where they sat. And there she was sitting one day with another guy sitting next to her. And they were leaning, leaning up against one another and enjoying the presence of God together. I'm thinking, oh, gosh. Um, and uh, a couple of weeks later, there, there they were on my appointment calendar. They were coming to talk to me about doing their wedding. And uh, what made it complicated was that this guy was her husband's brother. Now, when you're, when you're a pastor and you're sitting in an office, you know, people come in with this kind of nonsense. You want to go, what? Are you out of your freaking minds? You know, you want to, uh, but you can't. You have to say, oh, uh-huh. You know, well, uh, this happens. You know, I have these kinds of things come to my office all the time. You know, praise the Lord. You know, you know, James, you want to go, don't come back until you've repented. Okay? I I don't want you to walk out of here and go to hell, you know. That's what you want to do. But then you're judgmental, you know. So so she could tell, Mike, I was, you know, I couldn't disguise my consternation. You know, it's like, oh. And she, you know, she says, you know, you're you're having trouble with this, aren't you? I said, ah. Don't. And then she said, but the Bible tells us that God wants us to be happy. I thought, well, what's she hearing on Christian television? 
Okay, she hasn't been reading her Bible. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Okay? She hasn't read about the Apostle Paul. You know, and Paul says, I, I didn't hesitate. I, I just wanted to teach things that were helpful. And you know, not everything that's helpful makes you happy. Fasting doesn't make me happy. Okay? In fact, Jesus even says, if you're going to fast, wash your face and be a hypocrite. Put on a smile like you're not miserable. Okay? Prayer doesn't make me happy. I'd rather watch a football game. It's easier. Sometimes what's helpful is hurtful. But often we need people in our lives who will tell us what we... Uh, we, need, we often need people in our lives who will tell us... Uh, I don't know if I got this wrong in your notes, but it should be the other way around. I've got it backwards in mind. We need people in our lives who will tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Do I have it backwards in the notes? Oh, boy. I used to have people help me with this stuff. Okay, anyway, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant. Now, you've got to count it all, joy. This is the one place where the Bible allows you to be a hypocrite. But no discipline seems to be pleasant at the time. But, but what? Painful. No pain? No gain. I got a friend who's got a t-shirt that says, no pain? No pain. <laughs> Later on, however, it produces. Okay, what does the pain produce? That produces what? A harvest of righteousness and peace. But there's only one way to get to righteousness and peace. Okay? This is why we parents discipline our children. Because we want a harvest of righteousness. And we want them to be at peace with themselves and with, with the world and with God and with their friends. Okay? And, but it says, for those who have been trained by it, the problem is lots of people do not allow themselves to be trained by the di- difficulties of life. Well, dis- a dis- a discipline is helpful, right? So Paul taught things that were helpful. Now, number four, repentance and faith. He talks about leading people to repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, and we're back to brokenness and trust. Brokenness and trust. The more, when the more broken we are, the more we just have to say, I gotta trust God. I got nowhere else to go. To me, this is the simplicity of and the biggest challenge of following Jesus. Just brokenness and trust. Repentance, of course, just means to change the way you think. You know, this is what discipline is all about. It changes the way we think, changes our perspective. All right, now, number five. Number five, Paul's life is not ruled by unrealistic expectations. Paul's life is not ruled by unrealistic expectations. You know, but doesn't the Bible say that God wants me to be happy? You know, I wanted to say to that woman, Sister, if you marry this man, I promise you, you will not be happy. Oh, you'll have moments. But happiness, what what is happiness? Uh, Paul's life is not ruled by unrealistic expectations. Look what he says in Acts chapter 20. To me, you know, talk about a negative confession. You know, you can either say this is a negative confession or you can say this is reality. Paul says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not 
knowing what will happen to me there. And then he says, I only know. So he does know what's going to happen to him there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Welcome to full-time ministry, Jeff. Yes, uh huh. <laughs> We're welcome to the death squad. Um, we want to kill people, but they're going to kill us, you know. So I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. You know, Paul, if you didn't confess that, it wouldn't happen to you. I mean, that's what some people would tell us. The fact is that life, life is up and down. How many of you have lived long enough to know that not everything in life makes you happy? And when it doesn't make you happy, you can do one of two things. You can become bitter or you can trust God. Okay? Years ago, I gave everybody here a little life card. You know, you can push the button on the elevator and go up or you can go down. All right, so... Uh, Paul's life, number six, Paul's life is not ruled by unrealistic expectations because he has eternal expectations. He has eternal expectations. His life is totally grounded in his relationship with God and that not only gives him a great sense of peace no matter what happens, his relationship to God drives him, compels him to complete the task. Okay, look at verse, look at Acts chapter 20. I consider my, I consider my, what, what are the next three words? Life worth nothing. I told you this is in the Bible. I consider my life worth nothing. Life, say that with me, life Worth nothing. Wow. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, I've got to say that uh, James, you know, we live a comfortable life. We really do. America is kind of heaven on earth. Everybody wants to live here. There's a lot of, there are a lot of problems in America. I, I, w- I was coming home from the airport last week, and um, the taxi driver was, uh, Marilyn was in California. We were watching our grandkids, and, and the taxi driver's from the Sudan. And I, I said, uh, you want to go back to the Sudan? He said, no, it's terrible. He said, the government's terrible. Everything's terrible. And I said, there are a lot of problems in America. But he said, I, I said, you know, but it's a great place to live. And he just went on and on about America. He'd become an American citizen. And, uh, you know, we just, we have it so good here that it's real difficult for us to understand what true sacrifice is. You know, the life that Paul lived, the kinds of sacrifices that he made. Um, <clears throat> My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. I don't know how many of you have heard of Tim Kimmel. Do you know that name, Tim Kimmel? Tim's written a number of books. He's a best-selling Christian author. He lives in Phoenix. Uh, he and I went to uh, he and I went to seminary together, and I see Tim quite a bit. Uh, our paths cross in a lot of areas of ministry, and uh, we were just with a group of people, and 
uh, we were actually praying for a friend who was going into ministry, and, and Tim shared this story. He, he was at an international gathering of evangelists and Christian leaders, and uh, there were thousands of people there. I think a Luzon conference, something like that. And, and they broke everybody up into small groups and had people pray for each other. And so he had somebody there from, I don't know, Indonesia maybe, around his table, a brother in the Lord. And, and uh, so they, they said, well, well, tell us, brother, what, what, you know, they said to Tim, tell us, what, what can we pray for? And Tim said, oh, you know, I got some, you know, we, we got financial issues in our ministry and I've got a couple staff problems and, you know, I got this, you know, he's talking about some of the complexities of his ministry um, and he travels everywhere and does conferences and so they prayed their hearts out for Tim and then they asked this brother from Indonesia, uh, what, what, should we, what should we pray for? And he said, well, I want you to pray uh, for, for me. I want, for me, I, I, I need safe trees. Said, safe trees? He said, yeah, when, when I go from village to village where people haven't heard the gospel, I got to find a place to sleep. The only place that's safe place to sleep is in a tree. And sometimes trees aren't safe because there's snakes, poisonous snakes that climb up into the trees. So I need you to pray for safe trees. And when Tim told that story, and I'm sure he's told it a hundred times, he just started to cry. He was talking about ministry. And, you know, we just don't understand the price that, that some people have paid and are paying to extend the kingdom of God. You know, we're, we're not willing to give up our belief that the carpet in this church should not be blue. In fact, you would argue it's not blue, it's green. You know, what... Or I, I was with a con- consulting with a church a couple of week, a, about a month ago uh, and, uh, in Tucson. And I spent time with their elders and they had, they had a worship war because the music was too loud. You know, it's, you know, gosh, you know, these are really terrible things that are happening to us. Paul says, I consider my wife, myself, I consider my life worth nothing. Well, so this is just looking at Paul's life. But let, let's listen to what he says uh, to the Ephesian elders. Okay, number one, right in this context, being safe, number one, what does, Paul's, what does Paul teach the Ephesian leaders and you and me? Okay, number one, being safe and happy isn't a bad thing, but it's better to be courageous. I've done ministry all over the world. Uh, I've been to S- South America a number of times, and uh, some years ago, I was in Cali, Colombia. Have you seen the transformation video? You've seen that? Anybody? How many here have seen the transformation video? It's about the story of God working in Cali, Colombia. And the, t- the time we went, I took the chairman of my board, one of the guys on my staff, our Spanish pastor, Hector Torres, Spanish language pastor, who was Colombian. And I'd been to Colombia before, but the word was out that Americans shouldn't go to Colombia. And, uh, I mean, there were articles in the paper. All this stuff was popping up. We had all kinds of signs and wonders that were downright frightening. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But uh, I called the State Department Traveler Hotline, and it was really negative. And um, uh, uh, the pastor of our, our, uh, the the, uh, chairman of our board who was going with us, he grew up in Latin America and and uh, one of his friends, he, he, 
No, he knows everybody. A guy by the name of Harold Christ. Do you know Harold Christ? Anyway, he's a developer and he was chairman of our board. And, um, one of his friends who works in the State Department said, uh, he heard, called him and he heard that he was going to Columbia and uh, he said, you shouldn't go there, man. You just shouldn't go there right now. And he said, well, I'm going with my pastor, you know. And, and so I, uh, he, he said, this friend of his said, um, I, I got a friend who works in the CIA in Mexico City and I'll call him and see what he says. And so about 10 minutes later, he called Harold back and, and he said, my friend in the CIA in Mexico City said, tell your friend to stay the bleep out of Colombia." So I'm the pastor, I'm leading this this ministry team, and I called my friend, who, Hector, I called Hector, he's Colombian, and I said, uh, I said, Hector, you know, I called a State Department hotline, and they said that it's very dangerous for Americans to travel to Colombia. And Hector, he reacted. He said, what? He said, do you think the Apostle Paul would have called the State Department to find out whether or not Jesus went, wanted him to go to Colombia? And I said, He said, what, I said, well, what, are, what are we going to do? Said, I said, we're going to go. So, <laughs> so we went to Colombia. And the only time, the only time in Colombia that I was afraid was going to this giant prayer meeting at a soccer stadium. I thought I was going to be trampled by Christians trying to get into the soccer stadium to pray. That's the only time I was afraid in the whole uh, week or so, the week, 10 days we were in Colombia. 35,000 Christians came to that stadium and prayed all night long. And there were 10,000 more standing outside who prayed all night outside. And it is, you know, Colombia, never hear about the drug cartels now in Colombia. You know, Colombia has in many ways been purged because of the Christian movement. People took it so, took it so seriously. And it started in Colombia. The nation was transformed because Christians took it seriously. And the reason they were taking it seriously is because the pastor, the leading pastor of that city who was gathering all the other leaders together, he was shot dead on the sidewalk in front of his church. Can you hear Paul saying, my life is worth nothing? See? And so being safe and happy isn't a bad thing, but it's better to be courageous. You know, you t- we take people, we take missionary Groups, you know, take groups into Mexico or Central America, and sometimes we'll have some teens go with us. And the first, what's the first thing that parents ask? Is it safe? Now look at um, Paul says in verse Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-five. You talk about uh, courageous. He says, "Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom." will ever see me again. Will never see me again. That's courageous. I know that trouble is going to face me, but I consider my life worth nothing. The only thing that matters is pushing ahead with the work of God. Now, number two, the next thing that Paul teaches us, we need the whole counsel of God, not just bits and pieces, fragments, proof texts, sound bites. To me, this is how important it is to see the big picture, the big picture of God and life. Do we have the words there? Go back up once there. Big picture. There we are. Big picture. 
Now look at Acts chapter 20, verse 26. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent, Paul says, of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you, say it with me, the whole will of God. In the King James, I think it, calls, it says the whole counsel of God. Uh, listen to what John says about this too in his first letter. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. He says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. You know children. They know who their daddy is. They know who their mommy is. You know, if, if, once they start recognizing faces and you want to say hello to a child and they don't know who you are, they will cower into their, into their mommy. They'll grab their mommy's legs and, or their daddy's legs and they'll kind of look at you from behind their daddy. Um, and they haven't been taught to be afraid of strangers. They just want to be close to their mom and dad. Okay? But then Paul says, I write to you fathers. Okay? Because you know him who is from the beginning. This is about seeing the big picture. This is what it means to be a leader in the body of Christ. Because, you know, I kind of touched on this earlier, but we are so bound by, by trivialities, by things that seem so important in the moment, that in the, you know, in the light of eternity, they mean nothing. You know, you put a towel over a toddler's head and nobody can see him. Right? Well, where, where did, where did, uh, you know, where, I got my, my, uh, my youngest grandson, his name is Oliver. Where did Ollie go? We can't see him anywhere. And then he lifts the towel and everybody says, there he is. And he puts the towel over his head. Where did he go? Okay. Now, I know this, this is kind of cruel, okay? But what towel is over your head? What one, what, what one thing is over your head? And that's the only thing you can see. And because you, that's the only thing you can see, and, you know, you can't see anything else. What is it about that thing in your life that you think nobody else, nobody else could This is the most important thing for you in this moment. What towel is over your head? This is one of the biggest challenges of leadership. This is the challenge of raising children. Somehow the, ch- the child has to take the towel off his head, and as they mature, they have to discover that life is not all about them. It's not all about their little narrow perspective. It's a big world out there. They've got to figure out what it is. They've got to understand how to make good decisions. They've got to put things aside. They've got to make sacrifices. They can't cry. Right? This is what it means to be a father. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you, I write to you fathers because you know the one who is from the beginning. You know, the, you know this, you've got this eternal perspective. Acts chapter 20, uh, uh, verse 28 is our next passage. Paul says, he says to the leaders, keep watch over yourselves. This to me is just amazing because, um, you know, maybe it's not just, uh, it's not just about, it's not just about, uh, oh, I, I miss, I'm sorry, I, I skipped over a statement. Let's go back to number three here. I'm sorry, I'll go back one. You, you can't help others if your life isn't together. So in a certain sort of way, life really is all about you, okay? So this is what Paul says to the elders. Your life has to be together. 
Okay, he says, now I've shuffled my pages. Okay, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Okay, keep watch over, yourse- over yourselves. Your life has to matter. You know, you have to make sacrifices. You have to lead by example. This is God's command to every leader, every volunteer, every mom and dad, every role model in this church. Watch over yourselves. Watch, Paul is speaking to the leaders. Watch over yourselves together. Hold each other accountable. And then you can watch over the flock. You can't be a role model if you're not growing yourself. Ted Haggard, a famous Christian leader who fell into sin in a dreadful sort of way, big church up in Colorado Springs, New Life. Ted was on the phone every week talking with President Bush. He was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, had a huge church, best-selling author, and he had a catastrophic fall. And I'll never forget one message I heard Ted preach years before he had his catastrophic fall. Uh, The title of his message was, How Much Is Your Sin Going to Affect Me? When we sin, we think it's kind of a private act. I love this phrase, you know, two consenting adults. You know, so you've got one other person to go along with you, then it's okay. You know, we live in a community, and everything that we do affects everybody around us. And I I don't mean to sound judgmental when I say this, but it's a fact that the children of divorce are more likely to get divorced than kids who are raised by a two-parent family. It's just the way it is. And there are exceptions to every rule. You know what God said to the children of Israel because of your disobedience? You're going to wander in this wilderness for 40 years. And there's a little phrase in there that I don't even hear people talk about. And God says, and your children will wander with you. They're going to go into the promised land, but they're going to be delayed. Your children are going to be delayed for 40 years because of because of your disobedience. So Paul says, keep watch over yourselves. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. And I love this, which he bought with his own blood. Okay? You know, so why is it all about you because God wants your life, he wants your life to be full of love for the people around you for whom Jesus gave everything. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died for them. Okay, so you look at your children. We've got a you know, family, family right here. I th- guess these are your kids, right? Okay, so you look at your family, look at the people sitting around you. Do you know why your life matters? Because the people around you matter. And they don't just matter to you, but Jesus died for those people. He died for those people. So when I stand up here, I look at all, all of you. I think, 
I, I don't like you. But Jesus died for you. God loves you so much. I like to say this. God, God loves the people you hate more than you love the people you love. And so when you look at the people around you, when you look at your neighbors, when you, when you have uh, disgusting things happen to you, when people are mean, cruel, abusive, you know, uh, you have to be a faithful witness. Uh, you can react. You can lash out. You can just not talk to people ever again. Or, or you can kind of be like Jesus. And you can ask Jesus to help you do what's impossible to love the people that you really can't stand kind of like God for he forsook for God so loved the world he so loved the people that hated him that he sent his son to die for for them and so you know I look across the congregation here and this is this is what has to motivate me this is what has to motivate us in ministry that the people that we're serving are people that God loved so much he gave his son Jesus shed his blood for Paul for Mike for all the people in this family and your brothers and sisters-in-law and your cousins and you know the hand of God is on those people Jesus said if you do this to the least of these my brothers you've done it unto me okay so so it's so comforting so assuring and so transform transformational to know that Jesus died for me but we need, to know, we need to know that. But how often do we think about how Jesus died for them, for the people we love, for the people who are difficult and cause us pain? They matter to God too because Jesus died for them too. So here is the tension again. How do you love people that you really want to hate? Look at the next verse. Paul says in verse 29, here's the tension. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Life is a battle. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. He's, saying, he's kind of saying there's probably a Judas right here. You know, we're all here together. We're praying. We're talking together. But right here, among, I mean, you're, you're, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. It becomes about them and not the, not the gospel. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Which leads me to my next point, number four. You can love people, <clears throat> but you can't fix them. You can't change them. But under the lordship of Jesus, you can change. You can't change the future either. But we know that God's grace will always be sufficient. No matter what happens in life. Look at this wonderful passage, God's grace. So Paul says in verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. This was the Bible verse we used to name our church, the Word of Grace, Word of Grace Church. I commit you to God, to God, and to the Word of His grace. Th you know, this, to me, is like the foundation of ministry. It's not about me making things happen. It's not about me fixing people. It, you know, you, ca you can raise your children, but you can't change them. Have you found that out? You know? And so you, what, do you, what do you have to do? Ultimately, you have to commit them to God and to the Word of His grace. 
which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And finally, as hard as it is, number five, giving money, okay, giving money is easy compared to giving your life for others. Okay, but this is why Jesus came, and it's why you're saved, why you're here, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In everything I did, Paul says, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Now, it's really interesting. He doesn't say, by this hard work, I've earned money so I can give 10 or more percent of my income to the work of the ministry. You know, how many times have you not heard during the offering, and James has done it, and I've done it, we're guilty of this, we say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what Jesus says. But Paul, when he quotes this, he's not talking about the offering. He's not talking about money. He's talking about laying down your life in service to others. This is... It's very different. He says, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, charity is giving somebody money. Agape is stopping on the road to take care of someone who's been beaten up and robbed to take him to the inn, to give the innkeeper money to take care of him. Charity is going visiting someone who's in the hospital and praying for their healing. Agape is my mother taking care of my grandfather, my grandmother, and my father in my mother's home until each of them all died in the same room that was once my bedroom. That's agape. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But you know, that kind of giving requires extraordinary sacrifice. So, it's more blessed to give than to receive. How many of you have raised children, uh, you're raising children, or you've seen children? How many of you know your children will never understand fully your sacrifice until they have children themselves? That's why I believe that children are a specific, a fulfillment of a specific promise of God's word. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. (laughs) So so then they have children of their own and and you say, well, praise the Lord. You know, my my kids complain, oh, they're... We can't sleep at night. The kids are sick. And I just kind of say to myself, praise the Lord. You know? (laughs) My daughter-in-law, she had her first child. She was nursing the child. She had a very difficult delivery. And uh, she's nursing the child a couple days into it. And things just cross my mind. And sometimes I say things that cross my mind and probably shouldn't. And I said to her, Kate, I said, can you hear that, that sucking sound? And I said, that sucking sound is going to last for at least 20 years. 
Your daughter's married, right, James? But where's she living? In his house. She's married and she's at home. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then, how much money do you have in your inherit in our inheritance, Dad? You know, so. But that's the kind. That it is more blessed to give than to receive because you're giving life. To give life, it, it's just extraordinarily sacrificial. Well, Paul ends this. This is how the chapter ends. Verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. I've stood on what was probably the very place where this took, took place, in Miletus, at the, in the remains of the old Roman harbor there. 